Hello, everyone. I'm Brandon Valeriano. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and I'm here to welcome you to a Cato Live event for information technology and military power. During this event, we'll be talking uh, with a series of eminent scholars, and we'll be talking with John Lindsay about his most recent book, Information Technology and Military Power. Let me introduce the panel. First, of course, we have John Lindsay, who is assistant professor at the University of Toronto. We also have Eugene Goltz, who is a associate professor at Notre Dame and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. We have John Muller, who is a Woody Hayes Senior Research Scientist at the Mershon Center at the, at the Ohio State University and a senior fellow at Cato Institute. And finally, we have Jackie Schneider, a Hoover Fellow at Stanford University. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to John Lindsay to kick us off. Great, thank you very much for that introduction, Brandon, and thanks very much to the Cato Institute for hosting this. Uh, I'm really actually grateful for uh, events that were uh, hosted back in the before days uh, by Cato, where I was able to uh, meet with a lot of colleagues and talk about some of the ideas that eventually made their way into this book. Um, I'm also really grateful to be on a, a panel uh, like this. I think I've cited uh, most, if not all of you in this book. Uh, some of you provided comments on earlier and more incoherent drafts of the chapters. So it's really my privilege to share this panel with you. Now, uh, this book uh, grows out of some uh, of my personal experiences in uniform in the US Navy. So I thought I'd start with two vignettes. Uh, and the first is way back in 1999 during the Kosovo War. Uh, this is my first job in the Navy. I worked at the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center, better known as Top Gun. And I was a targeting officer working at the US headquarters in Naples. Uh, now, Kosovo was a very short air campaign against a modern state. Uh, it ended, ended with no uh, NATO fatalities. And to a lot of people, this really looked like a big success story for technology and the new American way of war. It looked like the revolution in military affairs had um, borne fruit. Uh, but we made a lot of mistakes, including blowing up the Chinese embassy. Okay, uh, this was um, you know, a mistake that involved uh, bad intelligence, coordination failures, uh, lots of little insignificant mistakes uh, adding up to a really, really big event that continues to have repercussions for US-China relations today. Uh, second, uh, about a, a, a decade later, I was working for the Office of Naval Intelligence and I forward deployed with, uh, with a SEAL team in Western Iraq. Now this couldn't have been a more different war. This was a long ground war against an irregular insurgency, uh, many thousands of casualties on the US side, hundreds of thousands on the Iraqi side. Uh, and this looked like a big failure for so-called network-centric warfare in um, a population-centric war. Uh, and yet, in the midst of this, we see the rise of the most network-centric organization that the U.S. had created to date, uh, namely in Special Operations Command. And yet again, I saw that there were some kind of interesting uh, pathologies that crept into uh, this way of war, namely mismatches between the culture of special operations, in particular um, uh, naval special warfare, and the, the, the mission to clear, hold, and build, or win hearts and minds, however you want to describe that, in AMBAR. 
So these were very different wars in terms of their duration, purposes, and outcomes, and certainly in terms of their technology, right? One was a decade later. But I was really struck by some of the similarities that uh, I experienced in these two events. And uh, this book, in many ways, is an effort to try and draw out some of those enduring similarities that I think uh, not only held across these two uh, experiences, again, just two you know, personal data points, but I think are emblematic of more dramatic epical shifts in military power. So the first is that hope springs eternal, that information technology is going to improve military performance. Uh, this is a recurring theme. I describe it as the technology theory of victory. Back in the 70s, this was described as the automated battlefield. The Russians then described it as the reconnaissance strike complex. Uh, the Americans translated Russian writings into this idea of the revolution in military affairs. Uh, the Chinese then kind of translated this American idea into an idea about informatization. And so this idea of having better intelligence, better network coordination, more precise and rapid operations is a recurring leitmotif in modern military uh, theorizing and strategies. Um, and yet at the same time, uh, throughout these same decades, uh, the actual wars of militaries that have espoused these ideas tended to be marked by uh, frustration, friction, uh, and disappointing results. So that's curious. Uh, so the next theme is that, well, you know, what has changed is not a revolution in the pace or the effectiveness of military power. What has really changed is the nature of military work in military organizations. So when you think about kind of uh, traditional military operations, watch even Hollywood today, right? You see uh, people fighting physically on the battlefield. But more and more military work is characterized by people working in information intensive environments, in office-like environments, doing more intellectual work than physical work, right? Uh, this is a big shift in the way uh, that people uh, wage and experience war. In many ways, it's a convergence with uh, civilian workplace practices, right? Uh, work is uh, taking place in office-like settings, even when forward deployed. Um, there's a great deal of information technology. Uh, there is a reliance in the US military on Microsoft Office products for command and control. Uh, this seems a little crazy for people that haven't experienced uh, life in the military. And for those that have, uh, it's so commonplace that sometimes we stop noticing uh, just how strange this is. Um, and, and that means that, you know, studies in uh, organization science and the sociology of technology, I think, have a lot to teach us about what's going on. Uh, another theme, and this follows from the last, is that people tend to experience events on the battlefield more and more through information technology. Okay, so uh, you go into uh, a modern military unit, whether it's forward deployed or in the rear, and you see people looking at, you know, glowing rectangles. So they're on video teleconferences, they're on their computers, they're on devices, okay? Uh, and their experience of what matters is fundamentally mediated. Moreover, their ability to influence their own organization or influence what's going on on the battlefield is increasingly mediated by technology. 
Um, now, this is really easy to take for granted, but um, you know, one objective of the book is just to help people kind of see how how strange this is, uh, and to start to unpack what that mediation means. Because if we're experiencing things through glowing rectangles, the natural question is, well, where does that data come from? What organizations touch it? How does it get shaped? Um, how do we ensure that there is a reliable connection between our data back in these command centers? and events on the battlefield uh, that we are concerned about or want to influence. And the bottom line is that in war, that connection often can't be taken for granted. So another theme is that there is endemic frustration or what I describe as friction, information friction in the experience of war. Uh, this connection is broken, so modern military personnel are often trying to debug and fix the technologies that allow them to understand and affect events. Constant minor breakdowns and constant repair of information technology and information relationships really define the content of experience. Now, this is kind of ironic because this is information technology, right? Its purpose is to reduce uh, uncertainty, and yet that technology becomes a new source of uncertainty. Right. So instead of lifting the fog of war, which is the dream of the revolution in military affairs, uh, it tends to shift the fog back into organizations. Um, so maybe a, a bumper sticker for this book could be that amateurs talk about the information revolution, but professionals have to debug command and control systems. Now, a lot of that debugging actually happens by um, uh, regular military personnel, often quite junior personnel in the field. Uh, we see a great deal of bottom-up improvisation, debugging, and hacking. Um, on the one hand, this is surprising. We think of militaries as top-down controlled bureaucracies. But on the other hand, when you look at software anywhere, there's a great deal of innovation and repurposing and creativity, right? It's part of what makes the information economy work. These uh, tools are designed to be flexible and extensible. Moreover, when we look at military history, we see lots and lots of field expedient improvisations, right? The Trojan horse was innovated in the field to solve a problem that the Greeks had, right? They needed to get inside of Troy, so they invented this whole new thing without first, you know, contracting it out to some Athenian defense contractor. Um, now, uh, I mentioned the defense contractors because they loom large, right? Um, the other side of user innovation is that it doesn't always go well, right? All this hacking and tinkering around can create security problems, uh, coordination problems, interoperability issues. And uh, this is very, very concerning to services uh, uh, that, that manage and create these big systems and maybe on the hook for things that are going wrong. So there's kind of always this counter movement to this bottom-up frenzy of uh, adaptation to try and control for the issues. Um, uh, and we see uh, this kind of ongoing struggle between top-down and bottom-up uh, bureaucracies and, and hackers in uniform, if you will. Um, now, there's two risks here. Um, one is that uh, too much control may dampen the very adaptation you need to deal with all this friction. And if there's more friction in this information environment, then you need uh, hackers in uniform more than ever. And the second uh, um, uh, risk is maybe a little more uh, subtle and in some ways more insidious, that the better the organization gets at controlling uncertainty and controlling risks, 
the more the organization starts to pay attention to its own processes, right? It's able to buffer out uh, all the turbulence in the environment and pay attention to maintaining its own culture and its own priorities, all right? So uh, the mediation of technology in some ways can get captured by this. So what the book is basically trying to do uh, in, in dealing with these kind of you know, larger themes is accounting both for the tremendous change in the way that military power is organized and experienced by warfighters, and at the same time, the depressing continuity of this ecstasy and agony about military IT. So I wrote this hoping to, to make something a little bit more than just this Clausewitzian screed against technology and a you know, uh, kind of you know, depressing uh, statement that friction and fog are eternal, although they probably are. Uh, there's plenty of that already uh, that's been done really, really well. But it's a little bit unsatisfying uh, and maybe even a little insulting to warfighters that continue to embrace this technology. We need to explain why that is. And importantly, we need to recognize that sometimes it does work out. So the book argues that it's not the quality of technology. There are conditions that are organizational and strategic. And those contextual conditions are what allow information technology either to improve efficiency and effectiveness or to create problems. The general argument is that um, information technology is a relationship between data and reality. Um, if you have a reality that is stable and structured and predictable, and you have an organization that is also very well institutionalized in its ideas and processes, then that fit can help uh, information substitute for mass. It can perhaps improve efficiency and effectiveness. Um, uh, likewise, if you have a really turbulent, changing, uh, chaotic environment, uh, the second best option is to try and uh, free parts of the organizations to in explore and find new solutions. But it's the mismatches that are dangerous, okay? When you have an uncoordinated organization in a tightly coupled environment, we get all kinds of tragedies like friendly fire events, civilian casualties, targeting errors. Conversely, when you have a really institutionalized organization in a really changing turbulent environment, you have this problem that I talked about before where the organization becomes more and more insular. So the case studies kind of go through uh, these different possibilities um, going from uh, World War II all the way up to uh, the present. So we have variation in the quality of technology uh, as well as these contextual factors. And so we see as things get more and more complex, we sort of still have this red queen race of people constantly changing uh, problems, evolving outside of solutions, solutions trying to catch up, problems then changing, and this goes around and around again. So uh, I think I'll stop here. There are a lot of implications that I hope we get into about new technologies, about cyber technologies, uh, perhaps about competition between the US and China, um, what the US should do with some of these insights. Um, perhaps we could even talk about implications for restraint, given that we are here at the Cato Institute. Um, I think there are many potential ways that we can go, and I really look forward to uh, the comments of the panel. Thanks very much. Panel in just a second, but I want to kind of frame everything. I found this quote really important and really critical. Why does technology keep inspiring such great hope and fear when actual systems have so often disappointed? And what's great about John's book is he tries to chart a middle path. 
I think that's really critical on this issue. And given where we are, it's important to really talk about how skepticism and restraint and having a considered approach about technology and its impact on warfare will be critical moving forward. And these really animate debates, the DOD and the U.S. national government. So with that, I'll throw it off to the panel. Uh, first, we have Eugene Goltz from University of Notre Dame. Hi, everyone. Uh, I want to uh, thank uh, Brandon for inviting me and Cato for putting on this forum. Um, I think it's terrific that Cato does these things. I think they're um, super important as a uh, way to connect cutting edge academic thought to um, uh, the real world, to, to making connections to policy and the think tank community. And Cato, of course, is exceptional in that. Um, so uh, I'm also grateful to John for writing this book because um, I think it's really terrific. And I'll try to explain why in a couple of points. I, I'm going to make three quick points in my couple of minutes. Um, so the first thing to, that I want to say is kind of a, a little bit of a lament um, because uh, if we were doing this in person, if it was not COVID time, I think we would likely be in the Hayek Auditorium at Cato. And that would be really apt for this conversation that we're having today. Um, it would sort of be the perfect environment because the, the book fundamentally deals with the issue of how organizations, mil how, how military organizations deal with the complex information environment. And um, that's something that Hayek knew a lot about. That's what Hayek was often writing about with respect to the economy, the complex information environment of the economy. And in fact, um, I, it's only in one passage in the book, but John is quite explicit about uh, how Hayek and this kind of thinking influenced the development of the theory in the book. And it's the kind of thing that I think would really, you know, kind of grab probably a lot of people in the Cato audience. So John does note that decentralization, Hayek's general recommendation, isn't always best. And that's true, right? So there are sometimes negative externalities uh, for other parts of the organization. So if one part of the organization uh, adapts, if one, one military unit adapts in a way that makes their information less useful or less communicable to the rest of the military, that can hurt your military performance. That's true. And it's also, um, uh, he highlights some of the risks of kind of in the field, hurry up, amateur led uh, innovation or adaptation to kind of kludge things together and make things work. Sometimes it's a kludge, not a hack and that that's a problem, like hacks have a certain elegance to them to make things work. And so there is an advantage to centralization. And that makes me think of another one of the big heroes of the Cato Institute, who it's very happy to, I'm very happy to talk about, you know, in the Hayek Auditorium or on a Cato video, which is someone else that John cites as influencing him, which is Ronald Coase. So talking about when it's right to do things within a firm and when it's right to do things crossing the boundary of, of uh, the firm's hierarchy to the decentralized market. And I think that's a really, that's, a, that's an image or a, or a theoretical construct that um, uh, John works with through the book and is very apt for a Cato audience. Like this is a great book for people from Cato to read. And it's a great book to help us think about applying big classical political economy ideas in a new environment in the modern military environment of war. 
Now, one thing that um, uh, John does suggest, he has a, a, a great graphic at the end of the second chapter where he shows that as people adapt and as adaptations get institutionalized and there's this kind of cycle of adaptations going too far and getting too decentralized and then being brought back um, in, and or being institutionalized, not being organic, or you know, sometimes they're too organic and they get brought back and institutionalized to make things work better for the whole organization. But even that process continues to increase complexity. And one of the things that's a theme in the book is increasing complexity of military of the military environment due to information technology. And again, that makes me think of the Hayek Auditorium because. Complexity is, you know, one of the things that's happening. The world's getting more and more complex. Suggests more and more advantage to decentralization, even if you have to temper it and make sure that there's some kinds of institutionalization to to connect it throughout the organization and to keep rein in the, the negative externalities. So, good theme. The second point I want to make about uh, John's book, again, is a point about the book's excellence, which is this is a truly interdisciplinary book. I mean, people talk about this from time to time, how they're doing interdisciplinary work and that's the way of the future and isn't it great? But John really is blending security studies, political economy, computer science, right? He has a background in computer science too, which is clear in the book and, and sociology of organizations. He has these four very different kinds of information or kinds of knowledge coming together to make the book work. And that's terrific. That's... Um, you know, it's the way of the modern world is interdisciplinary thinking is very important and it can give you huge insight, but it's also hard for the audience because the audience is comfortable in one discipline usually, or maybe two, but to blend all these different ideas makes it a real challenge to connect. And, you know, I've had some personal experience with trying to do this, that sometimes it, it makes it hard to get wide readership for what your big ideas are. And the great thing about John's book is he's very, very clear. And he has a bunch of great figures in the book that really help. This is a comprehensible interdisciplinary book on a big idea. But it's still a tough sell, I think. And so the good news for John is John actually has two careers. He has this one about big think information technology and military power. And he also is one of the very smartest writers, very smartest researchers on cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is an incredibly hot topic in the world. It's very policy relevant. People are excited about it. Everyone wants to read about it. And, you know, John is already getting very justly famous because of cybersecurity. That's great. He's a famous guy. He's going to be famous. This is a great success for John. But ultimately, this book is the book that's going to win awards. You have the interdisciplinarity, the connection between multiple big ideas. That's what leads to you know, people winning Nobel Prizes or it leads to you know, Etel Solingen winning the award for the Distinguished Scholar in International Security recently. It was her connection between political economy and security and nuclear science. And those kinds of things, this book is going to be huge. And I think it's really comprehensible and really great for its interdisciplinary connections that everyone can read and make. Third point, last point, is kind of about strategy. It's what John closed his introductory remarks with. So he closes the book with a very brief discussion of strategy. He says, look, most of this book is about tactical use of information in the Combined Air Operations Center or in um, uh, irregular warfare and special operations. That's right, but it has 
big implications for strategy. Now, John suggests with this brief discussion that the Chinese military is developing anti-access area denial capabilities, this blending of sensors and missile technologies that um, make it hard for the United States to intervene in uh, the Asia Pacific. So if we wanted to come to the defense of America's allies, um, it would be hard because of Chinese A2AD capabilities, because we would have to sail in on a ship and they would see us coming on the water and they would you know, uh, get us before we could get them. And John makes a very smart point, which is that the Chinese actually face a really difficult information practice problem to, to fuse data from a whole bunch of different sensors and to make decisions about taking shots with their A2AD network. It's a very complex activity. And maybe the Chinese are not actually 10 feet tall and not that threatening to the United States. That's a great point. However, John also doesn't take the next step in the book, which I think is really important in thinking about the US strategic response, which is he frames the conversation about strategy. He talks about US attacks on China. It's framed in this kind of current strategy environment where the United States is planning ways to intervene, maybe in response to Chinese threats or Chinese aggression. But our supposition is that we have to go on the offense against China to beat them back. But the information practice insights in the book make it very clear that there are advantages to being on the defense, not the offense, and that there are advantages to uh, fighting from the land against people operating in the sea, as opposed to fighting in the sea against people on the land. And the strategic situation for the United States is actually, we are on the defense. We are worried that China is gonna come on the offense and attack our allies in Japan or Taiwan, gonna come across the ocean or across the sea to attack our allies. The implication of the information practice challenge is that if instead of planning for the United States to attack China and saying, oh, thank God, the Chinese have an information practice problem that might enable us to attack them. If instead the United States said, wait a minute, our job is to defend Taiwan and Japan, to help Taiwan and Japan defend themselves even better, is they could take advantage of, of the information practice, the relative information practice advantage, in that if they thought seriously about John's recommendations, the US military, the Taiwanese military, the Japanese military, about how to design an A2AD system anti-access area denial to keep the Chinese out of Taiwan and keep the Chinese out of Japan using the advantages that our system has and our experience and our historical legacy has for um, information practice, we could do a much better job of defending the allies instead of trying to overcome Chinese defenses using our information practice on the offense. So the clear strategic implication to me, and a link to some of my own work, which of course I like as well, but the real implication, I just wanna focus on John's arguing about information practice. It shows that given the complexity of the information environment, there are increasing advantages 
to operating on the defense in U.S. allies, operating on the land to keep the Chinese penned in and prevent the Chinese from expanding across the sea, if that's what the Chinese want to do, which itself is not even clear. But I think there's a clear implication. This is another great advantage of John's book. I think you should all go out and read John's book um, uh, because it tells us a lot about a better way to implement U.S. strategy in this era where people are getting really worried about a new Cold War with China. Thank you. Great, thank you. Uh, we'll turn it to John Muller. Great, thank you. Very much enjoyed the book. Um, and what I'd like to talk about is less the book than the legs, it seems I have. I think John is really dealing with something that's really very important. And so maybe I'm talking now about his next book. We'll see. Um, he talks a lot in the book about the re revolution in military affairs. Um, and it seems to me that the, the discussion you've already heard, both from Gene and from John, is really very good explaining, you know, how nuanced and difficult and complicated the issue basically is. But there are a couple of areas outside of the military. Um, the, the military had this thing called the revolution of military affairs. But we've also been through a thing called the revolution of, could be called, the a revolution of terrorist affairs or revolutionary crime affairs. And both of those relate, the thinking that's in John's book, I think would really apply to them really interestingly. Uh, let me talk about terrorism first, and then a bit about crime and what's been happening since in, in the course of this century, essentially. Um, the, uh, in, the, the big big event, of course, was 9-11, in which the standard thing was that everything has changed. And of course, basically what has happened is that virtually nothing has changed. Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, 9-11 still stands out is 10 times, more than 10 times greater than any other terrorist act, more destructive than any terrorist act before or after 9-11 in war zones are out. Uh, in the next year, 2002, people were seeing a big revolution happening in terms of technology and in terms of the web. Let me just quote you from a, a very long article by Barton Gelman in uh, the summer in June of 2002 in the Washington Post. It runs full 3,000 3, words extremely long for a newspaper article. Uh, and he, he quotes a whole bunch of experts who said, terrorists are on the threshold of, of using the internet as a direct instrument of, 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 of uh, blood, uh, blood loss. And basically that hasn't happened at all. Uh, and so what has happened is there's been something of a contest in which the defense has largely proved superior, particularly in the United States and in the developed world. Uh, terrorists not only have not been able to uh, cap 9-11, uh, they've also not been able, they certainly haven't, uh, nor has anybody else been able to kill anybody but with cyber weapons. But in a large number of other areas, they basically also have, have sort of failed. Uh, and the Internet has basically been, despite the fact that it's supposedly revolutionized human affairs and social media and all that, has, has had very limited impact in this area. Um, it, uh, it allows them to organize somewhat better than others. But most of the organization, I've been looking at a lot of cases in the United States and elsewhere, is face-to-face. -face. Uh, and it may be that this helps a little bit, you know, you can email a guy or something, but it's pretty minor change. Uh, it, it can provide information. A lot of people have been saying, well, they can learn how to build the bomb. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of advice and stuff on the web, but much of it is real garbage. And the real problem is cutting through the garbage to get stuff that's fairly good. And the number of uh, terrorists who have actually used any things on the internet to, to do much of anything is extraordinarily small. 
mostly they relied on very old-fashioned things like bullets and and uh, homemade bombs. Um, there's also been an uh, concern that they could uh, radicalize on the web. And most of the studies indicate that they, did, they often did go to the web to find information that was congenial to them, but it was exactly that. They were already radicalized before they ever even went to the web. And if you want to be radicalized, you can be radicalized by the news continuously coming out of the Middle East, for example, about the latest drone strike or the latest uh, air attack or the latest disaster in Iraq and Afghanistan, the two wars the United States started after 9-11. Um, there's also been an effort by ISIS, and there's a lot of alarm about this for a while, uh, that uh, they would use the web to um, coach uh, um, uh, would-be terrorists in the United States and around the world, in fact, in India and in, in Western Europe as well. I looked into that pretty carefully. That made a huge splash when it came out. The idea came out in the New York Times in a big front page uh, article uh, in uh, about, about five years ago. And uh, what has happened is when you look at it, it's almost almost a comic opera. I won't go into the details, but uh, one cyber, one guy in um, would-be terrorist in North Carolina hooked up with one of these cyber coaches in ISIS. He said, can you help me out? I'm trying to do terrorism and so I need to know how to do it and so forth. And the ISIS coach decided that he needed some help. So he set him up with a guy in Virginia, not far away, uh, which he could use uh, to help uh, foment his terrorist plots. The guy he set him up with was an FBI informant. Um, not exactly, you know, we need, we have help like that. You don't need, you know, you don't need enemies. Uh, what has actually happened in terms of innovation, I think, and John can work this out in his next book, um, is that the, uh, the gainers on this have been the police, uh, no, the, the defenders. Uh, partly that's because these knuckleheads, uh, terrorists, have been using inter the internet and using particularly Facebook and, and Twitter to broadcast their grievances. So all the FBI basically has to do is sit there and troll the web, sitting in their comfortable offices in Washington or wherever, or they wait for a tip from somebody saying, this guy's really making big noises. You got to check out him, check him out. And most of the cases that have been uncovered have been uncovered in that way or started uncovering in that way uh, by, by following up leads of that sort. The most recent was not an Islamic one, but basically this harebrained effort to try to, to kidnap the governor of Michigan a few weeks ago. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Fox, um, uh, Adam Fox, who was at the center of that. And he and he basically broadcasts his goals on on the um, on the on the situation, and uh, uh, he, he's he's immediately infiltrated by uh, three, four, or five FBI informants into his little plot, who were all there conveniently to arrest him a few weeks ago. Um, so ba basically, that that what's happened in in that case. In the case of crime, there's also the issue, uh, cyber crime, the revolutionary revolution in crime affairs that criminals are going to be able to use the internet to steal a lot. Well, some of, a lot of that has happened, of course, but the evidence generally suggests, at least so far, as far as I can see, and John can work this out too, um, that um, the uh, defense is basically, it's been good for the defense. In other words, they find a hole and they plug it. Um, I looked at um, uh, some statistics, and I need to look at more, but at any rate, for 2018, there were some numbers about how much money was stolen by cybercrime and how many uh, people were stolen from, and how many successful crimes there were, in other words. And it comes out that the average take for a cybercrime is about $176.
In other words, as much as you could make working at McDonald's for a couple of days. So I, I was actually at a convention of cyber geeks about a year ago um, and said, well, you know, now if a guy wants to do a cyber crime and best he can hope for is $176, uh, do you want to even make that even lower? I mean, that sounds like a success story. Then 176 should also be considered that if there's more than one person in your in your in your group, you have to share the share the information, they share the take with them, so it's even less. Um, and also that the um, uh, the, that the, uh, uh, the, the, the the number is a, a mean, not a median, uh, and so consequently, it just seems to be that the the uh, uh, the thing isn't working. Also, what the terrorists have to worry about, or the criminals have to worry about, is the incredible number of false positives. In other words, to get that one successful crime, they probably had to commit a whole bunch of ones that were unsuccessful. So it just seems to me basically that things are under control. Uh, two other data points on that. Uh, uh, Ross Anderson at the University of uh, Cambridge in England has been studying this quite a bit. And he argues that over the last four or five years, the amount of money being stolen by cyber criminals has not gone up, stayed pretty much the same, which is really impressive because, of course, the use of the Internet is, you know, skyrocketed and will continue to skyrocket. So they've been able to hold it steady, even though there's much more use. Um, and in general, um, if you steal credit cards, you can sell the credit card number for by like $1. In other words, the credit card companies are getting so good at cutting you off that you basically are not going to be able to use the stolen credit card number, except in rare occasions. It's hardly, in other words, you can't sell it to any would-be criminals uh, for very much money because it's not worth much, which means the credit card companies who are not rolling in cash, uh, given the COVID thing, uh, will be able to, to work, this, uh, work this out. Uh, so in general, what seems to happen um, is that in many cases, companies are not even trying all that hard to stop cyber crime because it isn't all that damaging. They have to obviously concern themselves there can be some losses here and there. And they're finding it better to spend their time uh, helping people who have been defrauded over the web uh, and uh, basically gaining their trust and confidence and, of course, refunding their money. Now, it's taking it on the chin, but it's not very much to take. Okay, just one final point, as long as I'm extrapolating wildly from John's book uh, about adaptive management and so forth, um, is the issue of, of, of uh, global uh, of uh, global warming, climate, climate change. Um, it seems to me that one thing that is that John's book, the more I read it, the more I kept thinking about this, uh, has, one of the things that has not been really covered that much and dealt with that much is adaptation. There's a huge amount of effort and talk and publicity about trying to reduce global emissions. Perfectly legitimate issue, obviously. Uh, but bad things are going to happen. Bad things will happen even if the globe doesn't warm. I mean, be, there's, there's always things like droughts. And if the global warming makes it worse, then that's even worse, obviously. Uh, so consequently, um, you have a long time to deal with some of the problems, like 80 years in some cases. And uh, you'd also not only would you want to try to re reduce emissions, presumably, but there'd be, off, there'd be an awfully large room for adaptation. And it just seems that this cover area has not really been covered. So uh, I'm all on John's side about adaptation. Uh, it's a much under considered consideration. And I wish him for, you know, all the luck in the world of, of continuing this. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. And with that, we'll turn to Jackie Snyder. Thanks, Brandon. Um, I want to say when I was reading um, 
John's back. I was an intelligence officer um, in the Air Force in the um, mid uh, 2000s. And so much of this book um, just felt so familiar. It felt like a book that was like uh, written for me. Um, I don't know if you guys, there's these like uh, bored pandas and they show you um, images from the 90s. And like, you know, I'm a, like, a, I'm an early, you know, a late, early millennial. I was like an early 80s birthday. And it, that's what this book is for me. Um, so there's this great image um, in the book. I don't know if you guys can see it. Um, and this is an image from 2002. Um, I am almost positive that this was on my um, squadron officer's school uh, syllabus when I was um, a young officer. So um, I felt like this was a book written for officers just like me. Um, and now as an academic, um, I found that this book not only spoke to me as a previous intelligence staff officer, um, but also as a scholar of military innovation and adaption, and a scholar who looks at the way emerging technologies are integrated into the battlefield for military effectiveness. Um, and so for those reasons, I am a huge, huge fan of this book. Um, and I would love in the future for this book to show up on the um, the PME list <laughs> instead of um, some of the other easier books that we have on there that use a lot of buzzwords. So that's kind of what I want to talk about is what the what the warfighter should take out of this, because I think what is really um, a value add about this book is how self-aware it is about um, things that have really become buzzwords within the Department of Defense Innovation Ecosystem. So that ecosystem is keen to use words that uh, like innovate, adapt, artificial intelligence, quantum, cyber, jumping from new technology to new technology. And in the end, it's almost all information. Um, and so the John's second chapter, the chapter about the revolution in military affairs and the theory of victory, I thought was extremely apropos today. Um, because if you if you read any of these like C4 ISRnet or Strategy Bridge or War on the Rocks or whatever you know your blog of the day is, you find that um, you have these new young officers, these captains, that are now writing about information dominance in a way that is very similar to the 1990s without recognizing the 20 years of adaptation and transformation and failure that have occurred between uh, when military revolutions really advented with um, Andrew Kapinovich um, and Elliot Cohen, and then kind of where we are today, which is not nearly as self-aware about where ideologically it came from, and therefore I think is um, chasing a bit of its tail. So that said, so this book actually is a little hard for a warfighter. John has an extraordinary use of the English language. Um, and so sometimes um, I think that the warfighter might need like the, um, the like information technology and, and military power for the staff officer. So that's what I'm gonna give you now is kind of what are the insights here that we can take for the warfighter and the staff officer. So the first thing that I think this book really um, has useful lessons for is the role of organizational politics and identities um, in the, the use of information. And this is something that's implied in a lot of other military innovation literature. Uh, service identity, for example, is always thought of as a, a really important lens for how, um, how services invest in technologies um, and adapt to technologies. I've done some work on occupational specialties, as have others, and how they adopt autonomy. 
So we know within the military innovation literature that there is a focus on how these identities shape both innovation and adaptation. Um, but I think what John presents here is a really nice way of understanding how those identities and subcultures affect the way we process information and use information practice. I particularly like the discussion about COIN versus CT and the difference between the Marines um, and some of the Special Operations Forces and how they conceptualize the use of information based on the, the frame and the lens of their occupational identity. And I think that it's important as we're thinking about the investment in technologies and the adaptation to technologies within the services that they think that they try and be aware of where their service or occupational identity is skewing their use of information practice. There was a duffel blog today about how the DOD is um, like a, a game of hungry, hungry hippos where they're all just trying to get as many balls as possible. Um, and I think if you apply that to occupational um, identities, you can see how um, in this striving to, to, to reaffirm their own occupational identities, it, there is a desire to skew the information to get as many of the, the hungry, hungry hippo balls as possible. So that's my first kind of warfighter lesson or staff officer lesson. And the second would be, um, and this is a, a point that I think John makes really obliquely, and I would have loved to like to have more of it in the book. But in the, the chapter about the British year defenses against the Germans, he makes like a side comment about how um, there was not really um, a good substitution for that information was not a substitution for mass and how even with really great information practice, the British still needed to invest in mass in order to counteract the German attack. And there is a really, really um, interesting tension here that is super applicable today because in the quest for RMA, we have invested in technologies which are exquisite, and smart, and they um, they double down on information explicitly. I mean, the F thirty five is often referred to as the flying cloud, and um, but this comes with huge trade offs for both mass for buying less of these things and resiliency because you have networks that are extremely complex and therefore very fragile. And so I thought this illustration of look, information can't completely substitute for mass which by the way, was actually one of the assumptions and one of the direct a, I think my internet may have gone out. Did it, did it go out guys? Yeah. Well, you're back. So I have no idea where I left you guys. Where did I leave you guys? Was I still in the nineties or had I made it to today? Oh, no, okay. you were doing information so, and math. Bottom line. Okay. Bottom line, information and mass not substitutable. You have to have some element of both in order to be successful. Really important for the, the warfighter today and the staff officer today. And the third point is that um, I thought there was a really great um, focus here on the different levels of warfare. And so the use of information practice, which can be very successful at the tactical level and you not, yet not aggregate up to be useful at the operational level or make a difference at the strategic level. 
And similarly, I think um, if you look at U.S. strategy, there's a lot of kind of lip play towards information practice and the role of information, but bridging between tactical information practice success and then creating that strategic success based on information really misses the operational level. And I think John really pushes at that operational level and trying to apply, hey, look, here's a tactical level success that actually had very little impact operationally. Um, and then finally, for your lessons to the warfighter, um, the focus here is on bottom-up experimentation and adaptation. But it comes in competition with a top-down technology push. So I think, I think if you take the Air Force right now, it's a really good example because they're actually one of the kind of primary experimenters with Falcon View. You know, a lot of the focus in the Air Force under Roper has been on this like very fancy technology, AI dogfighting, swarms, and it lives mostly in R&D. And so all this kind of money that we've been focusing on and spending in developing new information technologies it really struggles to get over that valley of death and be implemented and utilized on the battlefield. And I think that information practice can help explain why some technologies are more likely to be adapted and utilized on the battlefield than others, which come from like a top-down push. So I really hope, this is my, my final lesson to the warfighter, that you use this phrase, information practice, instead of innovation. Because I think sometimes innovation leads to a bit of kind of technology theater or innovation theater, instead of like the boring things that really are the implementation of information. Um, my husband, for example, is working on a, an AI project for the DOD. Ooh, fancy buzzword. But you know what he spends most of his time doing? Working on IRBs, trying to get people to sign informed consent. It's the boring stuff. It's the practice of information and not always just the innovating information that actually leads to real both tactical and then operational and strategic success. So I'm going to get off this the, the you know virtual stage here. But... You know, one thing I want to push for John, two things. This piece needs the War on the Rocks blog. As I was reading it, I kept saying, okay, John, now do it for Kessel Run. Now do it for Space Camp. There's all these like software factories and um, kind of information specific organizations that are being stood up within the DOD with little thought about kind of how they can be more or less effective. And I really feel like this book it, it really needs that like tiny like nugget, that, that op-ed, that blog, that War on the Rocks piece that introduces it right to the warfighter and then tells them, hey, I know this is what you're doing. I have this thing called information practice that can make it better. So with that, I'm excited to hear everyone's questions and comments. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Schneider. Um, let me get started and ask a question to John. But first, let me remind the audience that we're taking questions by all venues, Facebook, Twitter, uh, however you're watching this platform, uh, please enter a question in so we can engage John on this wonderful piece of work. Uh, let me kick off and ask the first question and I'll kind of follow up on Dr. Schneider's point about information management. Is innovation or information management, which she states is probably a better way of putting this, is this a top-down or bottom-down approach? Now, this has been a long debate in the innovation literature. Where do you finally come down on that issue? And is it more complex than top-down or bottom-up? Or where should we go moving forward on this issue? 
Thanks for that question. And thanks, everybody, for these terrific comments. I mean, I've taken so many notes and, um, you know, you've given me new ways of thinking about uh, the implications of stuff that I've written. Um, so I, I look forward actually to continuing these conversation with, with all of you. So, so thanks, this is you know, just uh, a dream in terms of uh, really, really thoughtful uh, readership and, and, and prompting next steps. So, so that's great. Um, Brendan, in, in response to your, your question, and I think you know, uh, Eugene's comments really brought this out, uh, you know, this is a complicated story where you've constantly got this back and forth. Um, this is not a military issue. This is an innovation issue. Uh, there are things that markets are really, really good at. Uh, markets uh, get information to lots and lots of different people. Uh, they enable people to explore um, funny little niches, uh, come up with unconventional solutions, share those unconventional solutions with others. Uh, but, you know, markets have problems. They create pollution. They create externalities. Sometimes coordination can be hard. Um, you know, information may be hidden, and that can lead to all kinds of problems. And so that's kind of the conventional justification for governments, right? Governments maybe are, are good, right, at um, uh, providing standardized information, uh, getting everybody on the same page, um, intervening where there are big transaction costs that the market cannot internalize. And of course, we all know that, you know, governments have all kinds of problems. They are slow to adapt. They can get captured by parochial interests, on and on and on. So part of what, you know, this book is trying to do is say, um, hey, when we look at these organizations, especially as organizations become very, very large, the US uh, military is not only large, it's distributed around the entire world, um, it in many ways is a market unto itself. And it's also interacting with uh, civilian markets and you know, uh, allied markets, if you will. So once we start to recognize that there is a political economy not just a management problem, but a political economy to the way that uh, technology is acquired and implemented throughout an organization. And I think we have to take very, very seriously some of these trade-offs. Um, and and I think you know if, if you ask me where I come down, um, you know the, the, the last chapter is trying to dedicate towards uh, you know providing a few suggestions on how you might be able to um, harness, uh, empower, and release this decentralized bottom-up capacity um, while controlling some of its issues. Uh, and I'm really, really concerned right now that uh, the DOD in particular is kind of going the wrong direction on here, um, not recognizing that these kind of bottom-up adjustments, hacks, uh, debugging, uh, and innovative activity from uh, warfighters and, and others, right, uh, uh, is, is a really key part to making sure that your organization remains integrated with what the ostensible mission is. So um, I would say it's a, it's a complex set of trade-offs. Uh, it's getting more and more complex all the time, but that really, really highlights the importance of those emerging markets in a period of time where they may be harder and harder to really appreciate. Great, thank you. Let me ask the Cato restraint question. And, you know, let me pull from a quote in the book that I really liked. Uh, you write the different historical manifestations of technology theory all share a family resemblance. They assume that widespread adaptation, adoption of computing systems, whether by military force society at large or both, will make conflict more offensive, rapid, efficient, and decisive. 
And you really point out that this has become a flaw and a failure in the idea of the theory of victory. But how does all this fit into restraint and this sort of policy and strategy of restraint that the Cato Institute and many other think tanks are involved in? How does restraint fit into technology? And how does restraint push back against the grand pronouncements of those who say everything has changed and everything is different and now the offense has the advantage? How do you step in here? Yeah, great, great question. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, and this is something that I've talked a lot about with uh, Barry Posen, who definitely helped shape uh, this project in, in many ways. Um, and one way to think about this book is that it's providing some of the micro foundations that um, are assumed but not really developed in Barry's work on command of the commons. Right. So this is an argument that uh, the United States is really, really good uh, in the air, maritime and space domains, uh, but has trouble on kind of uh, foreign adventures on land far away where uh, the environment is more complex and cluttered and U.S. interests maybe are uh, lesser. All right. And so uh, Barry recommends that the United States should uh, uh, reinforce its strengths in these domains and maybe cut back from some of these adventures abroad, which, uh, you know, a more liberal internationalist perspective would would recommend. Um, but uh, you'll notice that in you know Barry's discussion of these four domains, kind of the big four classic physical environments of land, sea, air, and space, he doesn't talk about this cyber thing. And yet uh, uh, assumptions about information kind of are shot through all of these. Um, and just because as a, as a quick gloss, right, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about information management in a naval and air force um, perspective and, and think about why has it been that the Navy and the Air Force have been such early and eager adopters of uh, these networks? Um, well, uh, one reason is that the problems that they're dealing with, um, while they involve uh, a great deal of kind of fast movement and high stakes, they're also simple problems in relatively homogenous domains uh, that we can model with well understood uh, laws of mechanics and dynamics. So there's the potential to represent what goes on in uh, the air, sea, and space domains uh, in a way that is not equaled at all on the land domain, right? Which is, this is the realm of social science. Uh, and all you have to do is think about uh, kind of the big debates between can we formalize models of behavior? Or should we rely on more kind of qualitative humanities oriented approaches? Uh, this is basically an admission that we just don't have really, really good ways of, of modeling in a, in a strictly predictable and formal ways what goes on, and that means that it's going to be harder to um, uh, uh, to to come up with really, really reliable targeting processes and operational processes uh, in the land land domain in particular. So, uh, you know, so part of the the book's implications is to, uh, to to recognize that hey, if you think command of the commons makes sense, uh, part of the reason it makes sense is because there are these unappreciated kind of micro foundations of information practice. Um, now, I, uh, I, I love Eugene's comments because I think he starts to bring out maybe some of the kind of interesting tensions with that classic restraint perspective that says, um, hey, there may be aspects of being on land with your allies 
that may help to reinforce the reliability of information practice in these domains. So you can't just take for granted that the US has command of the commons, uh, because when we look at the particular regions in which that would want to be exercised, it would really, really help, right, if you are able to improve the information problem, both at the strategic level, and that means you know, uh, improving the credibility of deterrence. And I would argue that's often better done with uh, uh, land-based deployments, right? Rather than, um, you know, offshore balancing forces, which are inherently mobile and rapid. That's their advantage for war fighting, but a disadvantage perhaps for signaling, as well as creating those kind of operational, um, uh, uh, you know, places to anchor in the, 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 sensing and information processing activities. So I think there are kind of some really, really kind of interesting edge cases that, that we could unpack that maybe uh, militate slightly against the kind of orthodox restraint perspective. Can, can I Great, cut in you. for a sec? Sure, sure. Yeah, so John, I, I think your response to, to Brandon was really interesting, um, uh, but I, I just, you know, as one of the, original restraint authors and someone who loves what you're saying about information practice, I don't think you're being as inconsistent with restraint as you're suggesting, right? So um, uh, the idea, your argument about being able to model the air and the sea better than the land, you said it yourself, it, it's modeling them for targeting purposes, right? So it's easy to model and understand um, ships and airplanes in relatively bank blank background conditions as targets, right? So the, the US forces that are on the sea or in the air, we can model it, but so can adversaries, you know, whether if you want to think about Chinese or Russians or Iranians or whatever you have in mind, and they have an easier time figuring out how to hit us than we have figuring out how to hit them on the land in the complex environment that, you know, exactly as you were just discussing. So there is this question of, you know, you're saying, well, the U.S. could respond to that by doubling down on land forces in, say, East Asia. Like we could build U.S. military bases in Taiwan again, which we haven't had since the 70s. Um, that's one possible response to this. But that, you know, there's a restraint response to this, not the imperialist response. The restraint response says the Taiwanese have an easy time modeling Chinese threats to Taiwan coming through the land, through the sea and the air, while the Taiwanese defenses on land are a very complex, very difficult target set for the Chinese to hit. And so it doesn't have to be the US, like the US, if we really want, could bankroll the Taiwanese, or we could just leave it to the Taiwanese, depending on our estimate of how much mass the Taiwanese need. We don't have to use US forces. We could use the relative advantage to make the Chinese be the ones that have to be operating in the easily modelable target set of on the sea and in the air, as opposed to the current strategy, which has the US being the one that is model that is operating in the easily modelable and therefore dangerous space. So I think there's a much more straightforward interpretation of your work as bolstering restraint rather than um, you know, threatening restraint. 
Um, thanks, Eugene. I, um, I really appreciate those comments, and um, I'm glad to hear. I mean, I'm definitely you know sympathetic to uh, to this point of view. So um, yeah, let's 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 chat some more about that. Um, you know, I think a, another aspect, and again, I think I think this is another area in which it would seem superficially in tension with restraint, but actually incredibly consistent with it, is when we start thinking about some of the intelligence and cyber uh, requirements that may be, you know, um, uh, involved in kind of maintaining. Uh, this kind of counter A2AD that you talked about with no man's land or maintaining kind of an offshore balancing piece, which really depends on having uh, decent intelligence warning about what's happening as threats are developing. Well, um, you know, one of the arguments that I make is that in order to have that reliable intelligence, right, it has to be anchored somewhere in, uh, you know, predictable structural situations. Right, and that seems like well, okay. How do you do that if you are um, uh, uh, offshore, right? And that suggests that well, you actually may need a very um, active and engaged uh, intelligence posture, maybe an engaged cyber posture. We could talk about that uh, later, uh, in order to facilitate that more restrained and disengaged um, military posture. So um, I think that seems like an interesting tension, but uh, but I think it maybe starts to dissolve once we recognize that restraint is an argument about defense strategy, not about foreign policy across the board. And in fact, you want to have a, a very, you know, perhaps engaged economic uh, policy, maybe even institutional membership, right? Um, and some of those activities are the same things that may improve uh, intelligence relationships and liaisons. So, you know, I think that this starts to kind of point to these interesting cross-domain aspects uh, when we start talking about information, which at the end of the day is all about, you know, uh, building uh, reliable, stable institutional relationships. So, uh, so I think that's probably also uh, consistent with with restraint, but with an with an interesting, you know, wrinkle that isn't often added to it. Yeah, some great comments and some great questions there. Um, and we're going to have to dive into restraint more as an institution as we move forward. But as we've been saying as we go along, restraint is what we make of it that we're writing restraint right now. We can make it defense policy. We can make it foreign policy. It's moldable. It's not a fixed position. So we'll see how this evolves moving forward. But let me ask a semi-related question in some ways. Do we have any peer competitors in technology? Is there anyone that's doing it better than us? And you mentioned a lot about information friction. Has anyone been able to reduce that friction a great deal? Yeah, that's that that's a great question. I think that this this is wide open for kind of more kind of comparative studies. Uh, and again, that requires, you know, we can maybe talk about sort of the methodological requirements of doing these kinds of studies, like like really kind of in-depth sociological studies of how organizations uh, behave. Um, you know, the the Israelis might be an interesting uh, um, uh, country to look. Israel might be an interesting country to look at in this context, especially when we think about uh, cyber and intelligence, which has, you know, a pretty, 
you know, uh, sporting approach to innovation and kind of civil military integration. There's this, you know, total revolving door between, you know, Unit 8200, their SIGINT organization, and their uh, civilian information technology um, economy. Uh, and that uh, creates a tremendous amount of kind of innovative technology, and some would even say, you know, perhaps uh, excessively aggressive operations in some place. You can disagree about that. Uh, but, you know, uh, that looks like um, a country that has sort of embraced this very, very kind of uh, um, ongoing adaptive um, hacking approach to uh, defense, at least in this particular area. Um, but yeah, but, but, you know, but, but, but Eugene is, is absolutely right to kind of to notice that, that there are issues with the Chinese, right? The Chinese want to have all the goodness of this networked way of war, which they interpret of having worked really, really well for the United States. And I always find it curious in Chinese writings where they highlight the successes and tend not to notice all the tremendous friction and struggles and, and you know, quite frankly, you know, uh, strategically counterproductive behavior the United States has engaged in as it tries to, you know, indulge this technological approach to war. Uh, but anyway, so the Chinese want what they perceive as the advantages, but at the same time, right, uh, there are some huge civil military challenges in China to make sure that the party remains controllable and loyal to uh, the Communist Party, right? So there are still, you know, political commissars on down to fairly low-level uh, units, right? There's, um, you know, a great deal of improvisation, but maybe that has a limit, right? Because it needs to be uh, still, uh, you know, politically homogenized. Um, so that's going to be, you know, a, a, an internal struggle that the Chinese have. And China knows this, right? I mean, China has been trying to have a smaller, more educated force with kind of empowered NCOs and junior officers for a while. And yet China hands keep highlighting that this reform kind of runs against the grain of sort of these institutional and historical legacies uh, that, that China is still coping with. So, you know, I would expect that there's going to be, you know, a great deal of variety across, you know, different nations. Um, I definitely don't think the United States is is going to be the best across the board. That would be inconsistent with my own interpretation, right, which is highlighting the diversity of service and subcultural approaches. Um, so, you know, there's going to be different countries that can do it better in different places. But but again, like another, you know, big message here is that there is no silver bullet, right? I mean, if if being good at information practice is fundamentally about a relationship between organizations and environments, like, well, there are many different environments and many different potential military problems, okay? You cannot have a one-size-fits-all solution for all of those. Maybe that's another, you know, argument for the restraint camp, right? That that should induce uh, a degree of humility when you start thinking about where you're going to apply uh, this tool, which may be really, really good at some jobs, but not adapted for others. Great, thank you. So we have about 20 minutes left. Uh, let me ask about two questions. And then I'll ask a question to the entire panel from the audience. Uh, but first, we have a question from Frank Hoffman from NDU, who many of us know. He asks, are we at a point in time where cyber is like the airplane in 1920? Or is it much later, like 1941 in Pearl Harbor or 1960 with jets? Can we expect improvements over time to enhance certainty and some friction? Or is information technology like strategic bombing from the 1930s? Is it fundamentally flawed? Uh, 
and I wouldn't restrict this question just to cyber, um, AI, everything is kind of on the table here. So where are we with these major RMA technologies that people kind of talk about? And uh, how do you see the future developing? And a related note too, how would you investigate how we handle the future methodologically? Yeah, okay. Um... Okay, this the cyber question. Yeah, I think a, a lot of readers might find it surprising that a book called Information Technology and Military Power, you know, in the 21st century actually doesn't have a chapter on cyber at all. They might even think it's really weird that I've written all of these articles on cyber. And again, it's not in the book other than maybe I think there's five paragraphs in the conclusion. Um, what the heck is going on there? Um, you know, I deliberately decided to take all of the cyber stuff out of uh, the cyber implications will require, uh, you know, an entire book. But also, I think that these foundations of organizational information practice um, are really, really important and foundational for the way that we think about cyber. So the short answer to uh, Frank's question is that um, uh, cyber isn't new. In fact, I think we've really miscategorized uh, the information revolution as this new digital or internet thing that kind of emerged in the 80s or 90s, when what we're really looking at is this long-term historical trend that is largely um, you know, uh, happening at the same time as uh, industrialization writ large, where you see people moving into more information-centric practices, where you see the rise of general staffs in the military um, and large managerial structures in the corporate sphere. You already see a huge embrace of all kinds of information technologies. Um, most of what we think of as new in the cyber domain today, right? You can find all kinds of really, really interesting precedents um, as uh, as early as World War II, right? I mean, a lot of that's kind of like already uh, uh, almost or already digital, um, and you know, you've kind of got this very, very robust signals intelligence uh, contest. It's playing its, itself out over uh, the span of years, right? Looks a whole lot like persistent engagement and constant contact, and yet it's happening with radio waves and electromechanical machines. So I think that once we start understanding how information technologies and this entire process of gathering information, interpreting information, and using information is embedded in complex organizations, we're going to see that cyber is really just uh, an increase in the degree of that activity um, rather than the emergence of a new kind of thing. So um, I, I fully expect that, you know, we'll stop talking about kind of cyber X, cyber domains, cyber warfare, um, you know, if in a couple of years, at least I would hope that we're going to, for organizational reasons, we're probably not going to, uh, because this is just the way that everything is done. Everything happens through digital technology. And so those organizational strategic problems really are what we need to focus on. So I, 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 again, I guess, I guess the answer is, um, hey, cyber is not a new thing. It's a continuous part of, of all of these problems. <clears throat> I love your optimism there, but as someone who's been doing cyber for a long time, it's kind of tough for us to get away from that. Uh, Jackie, did you have any uh, follow-on uh, comments on that uh, issue? Yeah, I just want to say, I mean, I think, first off, I think the, the construct of military revolutions and the idea that the um, that history is necessarily this linear progression of like revolution to revolution, revolution, 
it's been a really useful frame. And I think that John actually kind of talks a little bit about where that frame comes from in the book, um, but not always like strictly applicable. Like sometimes we have to really kind of like um, mess with history in order to get it to fit into that nice linear progression. In fact, air power in some definitions doesn't enter in, isn't part of military revolutions, or it's just like a small element of the larger kind of mechanization revolution. Um, I see cyber as a small part, if we believe in revolutions, um, a small part of the information revolution. Um, and in that way, it's the ability to think about kind of how we use information more broadly and less about, I think cyber, if it is anything in this revolution, it's actually um, a threat and, and a kind of a counter to the revolution because it necessarily uh, goes at the very kind of foundations of information revolution, which is basically centralized networks of trust about data and cyber attacks that, cyber operations attack that. Um, so that's where you kind of see cyber fitting there. But I think like in general, if you're gonna use the analogy of air power, I think what is interesting is to look at like how the advocates of our air power and um, how they emerged and then how they shaped, you know, strategic bombing versus, um, uh, versus ground support, for example, and then look to cyber to see whether we've seen that kind of maturity in um, different advocates of strategic influences. Um, and I think cyber is starting to get there. I mean, you definitely hear like a debate between people like um, Emily Goldman and Fisher Keller and Harknet about this like persistent engagement thing um, versus, you know, maybe like people like Brandon and I who are thinking about cyber in a very different way. So it's starting to um, create its own identity, but because it does not have its own service, it won't necessarily have um, the same kind of um, impetus for like a, a Billy Mitchell um, or those kind of um, personalities that really take a strategy and get behind it because it increases institutional capacity. Can I just say one more thing on that? I, I agree with pretty much everything Jackie just said, right? And and again, one of the reasons I didn't address cyber in this book is because I was focusing on what goes on inside of military organizations at war. There's all this complexity and friction and debugging and hacking that's going on. Basically, the cyber problem is taking that internal problem and supersizing it to a global international level, right? which means that information practice and friction and debugging and this constant struggle between different interests, right, uh, is actually what this domain is. Um, and that's a little bit interesting because that's not the traditional story of kind of like militaries clashing with each other. That's a story of what happens within complex, interdependent, densely institutionalized spaces all right. So that means that cyber has a lot more of the flavor of what happens inside of organizations, which is intelligence, intelligence penetrations and subversions and sabotage and all of these sorts of things. So I think that like like part of what, you know, I think, Jackie, you're talking about is that the military is struggling to institutionalize cyber with these military frameworks without understanding that the nature of this space has a lot more to do with struggles within and between institutions and through institutions uh, rather than kind of that traditional uh, militarized conflict. 
Yeah, great. And uh, I think you mentioned this in the book, too, where it seems that some people, particularly in cyber, are developing a strategy and finding and building a policy and looking for evidence as opposed to developing a strategy, building out evidence and then developing a policy. And that seems to be the prime challenge with cybersecurity. And we haven't really developed a clear theory of coercion and a clear theory of compellence in cybersecurity. And if these technologies are going to be RMAs, they need to have an impact on the battlefield. And if we can't find that impact, that's going to be a challenge. But I, I have a question here from uh, the audience uh, from Anonymous. And it kind of goes on this information friction thing that I want to dial down on real quick before we, we move on. But they ask, how do we minimize high-level interference and minute-to-minute -minute decisions at the lowest level? So I think that's the challenge that a lot of people are pointing to is how do we take in information, how do we sanitize information, and how do we ensure that there's a clear chain of command with information, but also that we give information to the individual decision makers and the battle planners as they develop and as they grow. And uh, I'm curious to your response on that, uh, John. And also Jackie can jump in too. Uh, yeah, so I don't know if this is anonymous with uh... Guy Fox mask. If so, I guess my my answer would change a little bit. Uh, I mean, like this is the problem. Is like there, there's there's not a solution to this, right? I mean, information technology enables these kind of top down interventions at places that uh, would never have been possible before, right? Um, you know, Singer calls this the tactical general. It's the inverse of the strategic corporal, right? The strategic corporal does things that have big effects, and the you know tactical general now gets really really involved. Um, and and anybody has seen this, right? Like really, really senior officers uh, getting completely, you know, um, intoxicated with this sense of proximity and effectiveness that you can have by looking at um, uh, drone operations. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's always wrong, right? Sometimes, like it's important to have high-level involvement because there may be um, some real serious political trade-offs that uh, militate against kind of pure um, operational efficiency, right? Where you wanna just kind of move fast and break things. Well, maybe you don't, right? Maybe you're more concerned about the relationship with an alliance or you're main uh, concerned about um, you know, long-term uh, developments, maybe you're concerned about some kind of competing objective, right? So there are really good reasons sometimes for politicians or senior commanders to, to intervene. And the same things that make militaries really, really good at having these very, very precise, long-range, high-speed interventions in many ways are going to increase the incentives for senior policymakers to want to intervene, okay? Um, you know, uh, uh, there's a reason why President Obama often got personally involved in some of these drone targeting decisions. Um, you know, his... His critics called it micromanagement. In some cases, that may have been true, but there are also kind of some like really, really hard calls about like how you were going to justify whether we were at war with this particular group and whether this guy was a part of this group and whether um, you could uh, kill a U.S. citizen without having some due process involved. Um, all these sorts of questions, right, um, end up being really, really political value judgments rather than military technical engineering problems. So, uh, you know, I don't think there's a solution for these, but what I want is more awareness of the nature of these trade-offs so that we are at least having smart conversations about 
how the implementation of power and the objectives of power are are interlinked and you know people all throughout the chain of command are going to have to be you know increasingly involved and aware of those conversations and the conceit of kind of the american military focus on the operational and tactical level of war is that you could just let the politicians give you political objectives and then you could implement and that's what I'm saying is that the better we get at implementing, the less feasible that that distinction is going to be, if it ever was in the first place. So Jackie, I'm actually do you a little have any more. Thoughts? I'm a little more optimistic than John on this. Um, I think that um, I think that over the last 20 years, the response to the ITRMA has been a centralization of networks and data, which has allowed us extraordinary situational awareness to enable the kind of offensive campaigns that I think like Eugene's talking about um, and um, John's talking about. Um, and it's the ability to take like sensors from all over and centralize them within, you know, the, the DCGS and um, the chaos um, that, that John talks about. And I think they've spent the last 20 years doing that and not actually doing it well. So we've had a bunch of problems along the way, which is why I think you see people like um, Christian Rhodes and Peter Singer and these kind of tech advocates who are saying, hey, DOD, you need to catch up with the IT RMA um, by you know, consolidating data and doing artificial intelligence and having a data plan. Um, but I think that we missed that part of the IT RMA. And instead, what we need to do is instead of focusing on top-down centralization of data that then flows down to the warfighter, we need to build networks that are able to decentralize and able to, um, the Navy, I think, calls this like distributed lethality, but basically break into their own separate kind of networks where you have organic information and the investment in organic information um, that lives with the primary warfighter unit so that when these top-down networks are unable to survive, whether because of complexity or cyber threats or some, somebody accidentally cutting a cable line, um, that you still have the ability to create these, to conduct operations and maintain a, a better level of situational awareness than like the 90s platform-centric warfare. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to ask the last question uh, to the whole panel. And this comes in from the Everything in Moderation podcast. There are constant calls from many social activists to take some funding away from the military because we are experiencing a time of peace. What are your general thoughts on that? And how can we respond to their calls to reallocate money from the military to other sectors? So I'm going to transform that question a little bit on its head. And um, uh, the Cato Institute, and I helped write this report, the Building Monitor Military Report, called for reducing funding. So I would don't think anyone would call Cato Institute social activists. A lot of people are asking for a reprioritization and a rethink on how we spend money in the DOD on the military. But specifically for this panel, specifically for today, I want to ask, what are your thoughts on what we need to invest on in the future? What do we need to prioritize in the future? What's important in terms of information technology to get it right to remain uh, a dominant force in the international system? Uh, we'll go to John first. Um, you know, I, I guess my answer is simple and it'll sound trite, right? I mean, I think people are the important thing. A lot of the investment that goes on are, you know, 
the dream that we can have uh, centralized investment and lots and lots of exquisite systems where um, fees are going to break down in practice. Um, and so building command and control networks is necessarily kind of an ongoing process. Uh, and so I think making sure that we come up with ways to uh, empower and enable that, that is a cultural leadership task for the military more than it is, um, uh, you know, a large scale systems integration investment. So, uh, you know, I think there's opportunities to do that um, and really, really focus on making sure that we empower rather than suppress the strengths that are already really, really vibrant within the U.S. military, in part because it's gone through this long learning process that, that Jackie pointed out. Okay, Dr. Schneider. Yeah, I would I would do two things. One, I think that um, the DoD has had a organizational bloat over the last ten years. Um, their solution to not focusing on anything is to build a whole new institution, institution or organization, so that it can focus on that thing, and that comes with significant overhead. So I would cut down on the amount of organizations. And the second thing that I would do, um, you know, focusing on. Um, not just investing in information technologies, um, but also thinking about um, how we can um, invest in mass. So instead of buying 10 drones that are $10 million each, you're buying you know, 100 or 1,000 that are a lot cheaper. And so I think that the complement of improvements in information technology with um, the ability to supplement with cheap mass can actually allow the, the DOD to have resilience um, and staying power, which right now they have cost themselves out of. Thank you. Uh, Professor Goss? Um, I think this is a difficult question because it's so strategy dependent. And the conversation we've had today has only been a little bit about strategy, right? I mean, I think the U.S. should change its strategy fairly dramatically. And therefore, I think the U.S. should, I agree with the questioner, of course, we should substantially cut the defense budget. We should just buy less of almost everything because we can do that and still be safe. But if you want to maintain the current, you know, liberal hegemonist, meddlesome strategy that the United States has, if you basically think the goal of the U.S. military is to preserve the capability to launch strikes at any country in the world anytime we feel like it because they looked at us funny, well, then I'm sympathetic to Jackie's kind of argument that says we should buy more we should try to buy fewer exquisite systems so we can take a punch and keep punching. We could have a trillion dollar defense budget to, to follow through on that. Like if we really want to seriously have the capability to fight major power wars where we're on the offense, that's incredibly costly. But, um, but you know, I don't think that should be our goal. I think our goal should be defensive. And as a result, I think, you know, having buying, you know, stopping buying exquisite systems, buying cheaper systems, buying fewer systems, not building a thousand drone drone swarm to go on the offense, but instead, you know, buying a thousand uh, sensors that are small and cheap and you could scatter all over, you know, Taiwan or all over Japan to make it a, a resilient sensor network that would be hard for the Chinese to preemptively attack you know, that would be the right defensive strategy and it would just cost a lot less, like, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars less than the current budget. 
Thank you. And Professor Muller? Uh, yes, I've got a book about this coming out next next year. Uh, it seems to me that there, they, the amount of money spent on the military should be proportioned to the amount of threat we have. And we have virtually no threat that requires a large military budget. Now, the military has been an abject failure pretty much since World War II. It hasn't won any wars except against enemies that didn't exist, essentially. The first Gulf War, uh, Kosovo, uh, Grenada, and uh, it couldn't even, it couldn't even as, as uh, John points out in his book, it couldn't even win in Kosovo without bombing the Chinese embassy. Uh, it seems to me that uh, its it, it record in this century is colossal disaster. It's started two wars which have resulted in, in, in the deaths, not including the one in Libya, uh, the, uh, to, a number of deaths in Afghanistan and in Iraq is in the hundreds of thousands, more than died in Hiroshima. Hundreds of thousands of people died because of the military. Um, if we didn't have a military, we couldn't get into stupid things like those two wars or like the one in Vietnam. As Bernard Brody once put it, one way to keep people out of trouble is to take away the tools from, by which they get into them. I'll promote once again the building the modern military report that the Cato foreign policy team has been producing. We talked a lot about streamlining multi-domain battle systems in last year's report. And next report, we're probably going to talk a lot about cyber and AI. And critically, we need to talk about streamlining management, streamlining strategy, developing strategy, and thinking more about how we increase the ability to get warfighters into the system and to... Uh, <laughs> improve the pipeline. But the most important thing is to move away from these artificial targets like a 530 Navy and a 386 Squadron Air Force that are based on aspirational goals that don't really have any clear connection to modern realities, budget limitations, and the need to really integrate unmanned platforms overall into the U.S. military. But with that, I'm going to turn it over to John Lindsay to wrap up and to leave us with any parting thoughts on his book. And maybe you can tell us where he's going to go next. So thank you, everyone, for attending. And, John, you can uh, you can wrap up for us. Okay. I, I just really want to thank uh, the Cato Institute and the panel. This has been a really fantastic conversation. And um, as we do this on Zoom, I think we're all experiencing a little bit of the information friction that the book is about. So uh, I hope that this resolves and in the future we can do this in person. So thank you very much.